Welcome to Facing Mental Illness, the podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Seidman. And this is your co-host and producer, Laura Randall. We are delighted that you're joining us today to hear another personal story of someone with lived mental health experience. Today, our guest is Lainey Clore. Lainey is 25. She is a school-based occupational therapist who lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And if her name sounds a little bit familiar to uh, regular listeners of this podcast, you may know that we previously interviewed Lainey's brother, Aiden. And I always think it's very interesting to interview different people from the same family, whether they, they all have mental health challenges or just one person does, just because the perspective on a mental health challenge is very different depending on where you're looking at it from. Lainey, we're delighted to have you with us today. Thanks for coming on Facing Mental Illness. Thank you. I am excited to be here. Generally, we start um, by just trying to get to know you a little bit. So can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, your family, your position in the family, kind of like what your childhood was like and so forth? Sure. Um, So I grew up with my mom, my dad. When I was three, my little brother, Aiden, came along, who you interviewed previously. Generally, I'd say in the scheme of things, I had a pretty good childhood. When I was really young, the only significant thing was that I have a little condition called sensory processing disorder. And so if you haven't heard of that, uh, it's very commonly comorbid with conditions like autism and ADHD, neither of which I have personally been diagnosed with. The common description is that It's like a traffic jam in your brain or your central nervous system. So I have never been able to filter out all of the sensory information like other people have. It gets overwhelming up there in my head. And at a very young age, that did already start to cause some stress and anxious behaviors. My early childhood was overall quite good. We were a really stable family. I've always been really, really close with my brother uh, and my parents as well. They did work a lot. And when I was not at home, then I would be either at school or with a caregiver that Aiden and I both had. And that was also something that put a bit of pressure on me from a young age because Being the oldest, I was expected to kind of watch the other children and have a lot of responsibility. And so I think that those two factors definitely kind of primed me, in a sense, to maintain these anxious, stressed, um, somewhat perfectionistic behaviors. I'm not familiar with being the oldest. I was a middle child, but did you feel like um, being the oldest, particularly in a family with parents who were very busy, that you were kind of expected to um, step into a a bit of a um, supervisory role? It wasn't even my, at first it wasn't even my, my parents in particular, because they did have this caregiver that would 
pick, come pick us up from school, um, take us to our activities in the evening. We'd kind of stay at her house until probably around like seven o'clock every day. And within that, I was definitely the, the oldest child. She had two kids and for a period of time, there were a couple of other children in that staying in the house. And so in that regard, I definitely had to kind of step up into an almost parental role because I was expected to, um, starting around the ripe old age of maybe seven. Uh, I would have to, to watch the other children. And so it definitely put a lot of responsibility on me that I was not necessarily prepared for. You know, this person was also not very in like in tuned to my emotional needs as a child with sensory processing disorder and who has these anxious behaviors as well. Were you diagnosed with the sensory processing disorder as a child or did that come later? Yes. So I actually... My parents were really on top of it. Uh, when I was a little kid, they knew that something was wrong, but they didn't know what. So I'm not sure how they found out about occupational therapy, but somehow they did. And I'm so glad for it. I had evaluations around the age of four um, where that therapist determined that I probably did have a sensory processing disorder, not autism spectrum, not ADHD, just that pure sensory processing disorder. So I knew from a very young age, at least. What did it feel like at that point? I mean, is there any, can you describe it at all? I have very vague memories of the earliest instances. So I remember in some points feeling like lights were blinding. I definitely did not like to brush my teeth. I'd not like to brush my hair. I had texture issues with food for a long time. Shoe, I hated wearing shoes. I, I still don't wear certain textures like denim. How about loud noises? That was a big one for myself. That's still my big thing is uh, the auditory aspect. When I was very little, the auditory aspect wasn't as prominent for whatever reason. I was very resistive to touch and light my proprioceptive and, and vestibular systems uh, that essentially let you know where your body and joints and head are in space were something was was very off with those as well. And so I do remember feeling like I would get stuck just out of the blue for no reason. Nothing's wrong. I'm not, I don't appear to be stuck from the outside, but I remember feeling like my body would get stuck and I had no idea what to do. And as time progressed, it did switch over to primarily auditory around the age of like eight or nine. And since then, that has been my biggest challenge. And did you actually start seeing a therapist at that point to, to work on this? Yes, I did. I started seeing an occupational therapist probably around four and it carried over into elementary school. And so through the ages of like four to 10, I was definitely getting occupational therapy. 
What did that look like in terms of, for example, how, how would they work on an issue like yours? So some of mine really took time with limited controlled exposure. For example, I had a therapist for years try to get me to, to touch certain textures. Uh, so paper was a big one. I hated paper. I'm still not a huge fan, but I can, I can touch it now. <laughs> and so every time, just that limited controlled exposure to those texture, textures in small bits, they would do that. For example, my auditory processing challenges clearly were not going away. So they would do more adaptive techniques. And so I would get accommodations in school to wear headphones, listen to music from ever since I was in the third grade. They gave me little MP3 and headphones, and I would have those accommodations to listen to music in class whenever I needed to because it was just so challenging for me to learn in that environment, to take tests in that environment. And I still, I still use my earplugs religiously to this day. It actually made a huge difference for me. Did you struggle with school in school or did you do pretty well with the adaptations that you made? I did pretty stellar in school, which will come up again with my adaptations. I don't think that I would be at this point without them. So I am eternally grateful for my occupational therapist that I had who gave me those testing accommodations. I remember your brother Aiden telling me as well how on top of things your parents were, that they were really aware of mental health issues and brain disorder mm -hmm. issues and so forth. So that's impressive that they that they got you help that early on. It didn't, in fact, eliminate the possibility of, of having mental health challenges. Maybe you can talk a little bit about when that started happening. I was having these anxious thoughts from a very young age, which is something that I've actually seen in my old occupational therapy evaluations and school evaluations, these fearful thoughts started very young. This feeling of lack of control started very young. And then with the pressure in around middle childhood, coping with that, doing well in school, and then trying to be in almost this parent-like role after school every day with my caregiver it really started to put a strain on me. And when you combine that with the sudden awareness around starting around seven or eight of my looks and how not only does my S SPD make me different, but I felt like I looked very different from other kids and became a very just self-conscious child. All of this together meant that I was starting to feel that depression by 11. How did this depression manifest? I mean, what did it look like at that point? I did not want to get up in the morning to go to school because of what would come after. Um, I just start, I couldn't even enjoy really my weekends anymore as a child because all I could think of was what was going to come, the unpleasantness that 
that came with it and all of that pressure being in that kind of fear driving environment like i said i just felt kind of helpless in es- escaping those pressures and i actually had a friend of mine when i was about 11 tell me i can't hang out with you anymore you're so sad he was basically telling me that my inability to go with the flow my need for control my sadness was at age 11 affecting my ability to keep friends were yeah. you able to to talk to your parents about it i mean could you find the words to describe what was happening i don't think i could because i was so young and it's not that i wasn't close to my parents but my friend was actually despite her young age using the word depressed but i don't think i really knew what that meant i did have one time where a, a teacher called my parents very concerned about me because of how i was speaking about my life and my feelings but i don't remember at that age trying to explain it to them how deep did this depression go i mean were you having thoughts of harming yourself were you just sad what did it feel like at age 11 it was mostly just sadness not wanting to like i said get up and go to school in the morning which was unfortunate because school was actually something that i was quite good at and it definitely got worse from there uh it got worse around 12 as happens with the adolescent brain by by 12 i was definitely going into that depression again um and that largely was based on my appearance I remember feeling very different from everybody else all the other girls i was tall a little bit chubby i felt so awkward in my own body acne braces typical adolescent things but it just started to wreak havoc on my mental health did this come to a climax at some point or did your parents step in what happened it's complicated in a way because i think my parents were a little bit aware they interpreted my like constant checking of my face and my body and staring at the ground when i walked pulling my hood over my head my hair over my eyes I don't know if they knew how to interpret that and I think it was something that just upset them more than was a red flag at the time. And my my dad actually did take me to a dermatologist because he did start to see how upset I was getting and how much I was starting to hide. It definitely helped uh at first and I'm so glad that he dragged me there. that was a, a clear sign i think that they noticed and i also took it upon myself to lose weight before the 8th grade my my mom was aware of this she actually kind of did it with me and supervised it which was i think a a pretty good reaction instead of saying no you can't or just ignoring it she she kind of went on that little weight loss journey with me and it did help for a bit you know the next year i felt like the 
different person. I had these new routines in my life and, and those routines will come up again and again. And I was a bit happier, but I did start to see that those almost obsessive behaviors start to manifest around my appearance around that age. You know, the doctors told me, be very consistent with these medications, with washing your face, for example. And I took that very, very seriously. I never, ever missed a day. So at 13, I definitely started to become very rigid about my appearance and the routines that I had surrounding them. And I became so invested in staying thin and and trying to keep my skin clear. I was on a mission. So was high school a better period then? Because you kind of felt like you had some control or, or were things getting progressively worse all the time? Progressively worse all the time. When I started high school, like I said, I had a brief period around the eighth grade where things were pretty stable. I thought they were looking up. And then in high school, what killed me, my acne came back so bad, worse than ever, immediately before I started high school, which one of the worst possible times, as you could imagine. And I started back up with this constant comparison between myself and the other the other girls. And I just started spinning those wheels constantly every single day, observing what these other girls looked like and comparing myself. And I plummeted is the only way I can describe it. I remember even at the time writing in my journal, it feels like you are walking along and you, you fall into a hole. You're falling and falling and nobody else is falling into that hole is what it feels like. And you don't know how to get out. You don't know how to tell people. That was one of my lowest points. That's when I started to have those thoughts of, as horrible as it sounds, to hear myself say it as an adult, those thoughts of, I don't deserve to be here. I'm such an eyesore. I am simply a monster. They affect you so much when you're young. I just started spiraling. I would cry pretty much every day looking in the mirror. I got, I did get to a point where I wished that I wasn't there. Were you able to confide in anyone? I mean, were were you close enough to your mom to talk to her about it? I mean, obviously she must've seen that you were kind of going downhill. I was able, I think, to confide in her a little bit. I think in that regard, with my skin, at least, it was more my dad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was actually able to Biden because he had that experience and my mom didn't. I would sometimes talk to him, but I don't think that I was telling anybody as much as I I should have because it was so different. I honestly thought that if I couldn't pull myself out of on my own by myself, pull myself up by my bootstraps, that I just didn't deserve it. Therapy was still such a, a I feel like a shameful word that I didn't even want to consider. When you graduated from high school, were you kind of thinking like, well, when I go off to college, I can make a fresh start? I mean, where did you choose to go to school? I went to Florida International University in Miami. I definitely was thinking that. I was so tired of high school. I felt the need to get out, go somewhere completely different. And that probably added a whole bunch of new stressors, I can imagine. It sure did. And it was 
for one thing, such a culture shock, which in a way is what I wanted, but it was like a complete 180 and I didn't know anybody there. Whereas in Sarasota, I had a lot more people like my parents. You know, my parents are, are Cincinnati transplants. A lot of people are almost kind of like that Midwestern, I feel like in Sarasota. Miami is completely different. It was really cool to see that much diversity that I had never seen before. When I first moved there, I did end up being stopped. I mean, I was a little bit naive as a a freshman in college often is. I had a hard time saying no to people. I didn't know how to reject people. Stalked me and I didn't understand at the time that he actually, he had schizophrenia. That adds a whole other element that I did not understand until my brother started experiencing his psychosis. And so with that massive stressor, plus the pressure of getting grades in school, if you've read the article on my brother, this is where his substance, uh, his substance abuse starts to really, really ramp up. I had some of his friends actually contact me because I was in a sense a mediator within my family and tell me like, you got to do something. These factors combined just pushed me to a place where, I don't know, I think something just just broke in me. I also started breaking out from the stress. I think that just pushed me over the edge. Yes. And now you're being put in the position of feeling like you have some responsibility for keeping him from falling into this addiction. Is that correct? That is correct. And that was a, a bit of a part of the high school experience that we glossed over. So it's it did start when I was around 15. It was the first time that he admitted to me that he had used any kind of substance. And I was such a straight-laced, paranoid kid. It scared me, but I had plenty of friends who had used these things before. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll keep tabs on this for now. I did not want to stress out my parents any more than they already were. It just kind of escalated from there. As it ramped up and they started to become more and more dangerous, I did feel this overwhelming sense of protectiveness over my brother, over my parents. And at a very young age, I I took it upon myself to kind of mediate, figure out what I had to tell them, what I couldn't tell them, you know, based on his trust in me. So my fear was that he would stop trusting in me if I told them about the more minor things and then nobody would know. And that was a very stressful position to, to put on yourself at the ages of 15 to 21. How did you make that realization that he was experiencing that? He texted you. And what did he, he say? Me. He said, I'm addicted to, sure. I'm addicted to this substance. I have psychosis. It was a lucid point. And I learned at that point that, that my, the roles had switched in a sense. So my parents were trying to protect me as a senior in college, just trying to get into grad school. They didn't want me to worry. They were hiding this from me and I was getting inklings of it everywhere. So I knew that something was wrong and I was very, very protective over him and very scared, but I didn't know the extent of it yet until he came out and told me. And I still don't know why, because I know his, my, our parents didn't want him to do that. But like I said, we are very close and it may have just eaten away at him with my not knowing. 
so you have that on top of everything else, but what are you dealing with in yourself at that point? And was he aware of what you were dealing with? Yep. We would talk all the time, at least before his his struggles got really bad and, and lucid moments got less frequent. We would talk all the time about what we were going through. He was right there, always by my side. When, when I was in high school, we knew that we were both struggling with depression and that I was struggling with body image. When I was going through some very poor um, relationships, dating experiences in high school as well, he was right there. He knew when I was being stalked. He knew when I started creating all of these rules when I started getting those OCD symptoms. In a sense, I, I do feel like we, e even if he wasn't aware all of the time because of the substance abuse, that we were sort of struggling and going through it together. And that's part of the reason I think that we are so close. Did things reach a climax point for you during your college years or did they gradually start getting better? I did reach a point in my like freshman to sophomore year where I started creating, like I said, so many rules for myself. And I suspect that feeling out of control with my own body and feeling out of control with what was going on at home just led me to a point where I needed these rules. And I, something in my head told me that these rules would help. After seeing time and time again that they didn't do anything, I still compulsively had to follow them. Give me some idea of what, what were some of the rules? I decided I would start washing my face at exactly 8 p.m. before my roommates ever came back. And that just became a rule. I would always change my pillowcase every single night. And in fact, I would wake up during the night if my face ever even touched it. I was so tense that even while sleeping, if my face touched it, I'd wake up during the night. And I also had, I started developing food rules. I then decided that I can no longer go to the gym to burn off calories because I can't wear makeup to the gym and nobody can see me. And, and I'm also hearing on the internet, oh, these foods cause acne, these foods cause acne, these foods cause acne. And so these thoughts of, oh, I have to, to stay thin and I can't have acne and be caning weight and things that really just don't make sense were leading me to, to create food rules as well. It really wasn't so much about what the rule was as the comfort of having a rule. Yes. And there was a, a, a lot of distress despite the rules, but I think there is this idea that if you have them and you follow them, there's a chance of it getting better, even if you've been shown time and time again, yeah. that they do nothing. These habits just made me a hermit. I stopped doing any extracurriculars. I stopped seeing friends. I was pretty much confined to my room. And it felt like if I was about to even walk out my dorm without something covering my face, it felt like there was a, a hand almost pushing on my chest, pushing me back as if there was a force that could not let me go out there and be seen in my bare face. And I had been, like I said, very depressed about it before, but this was new and it was hell. And did you realize you needed help? At the time, 
I did start seeing a university counselor for the stalking incident and things that were going on at home and grades, which I did fine with, but just trying to manage the stressors. And she tried to give me affirmations. Eventually she got to the point where she realized and she said, I can't help you anymore. Like you need someone more specialized. You, I think you have OCD. At that point I was like, okay, I guess it's time to look for somebody else. And I did find a CBT, a cognitive behavioral therapist and started going to her. She had me do the homework where you like write out your, your fears and the what ifs, trying to reframe those thoughts and helping me with those kinds of strange all or nothing types of thoughts. I do think that that, that period of time was very useful for me. So was that kind of the beginning of your working your way to better help mental health? I definitely think so. Before college, I had this idea that it was maybe not shameful for other people to get help, but for some reason for me, like a, a thing of shame that I couldn't just pull myself out of it. Because do you think that was because you were so smart and such a perfectionist and meant to be the kind of the leader of your family that you felt like it would be, you know, admitting that you couldn't be all those things? Yeah, that I think that was part of it. The times being diff, a bit different in general and that added on. My mom once told me, she once told me like, oh, you were, you're like an anchor. You still kind of seem to have a good head on you. You seem stable. And I took that to heart so much being the anchor, being the rock, and just trying to help whenever I could. So I do think that that probably had something to do with it. At what point did you decide, I'm going to take this, you know, all of this struggle that I've had, and I'm going to commit myself to that field so I can help somebody like me? It actually started in high school. I believe it was actually my mom who said, well, have you ever thought about becoming an occupational therapist and helping kids like you? And I was like, that's actually a really great idea. And so I started shadowing it and I loved it. And so from then on, it was, I knew the path that I was taking. So those who haven't heard the recording with Aiden or read the story um, may not know that he also um, has successfully navigated his uh, mental health and addiction challenges and is on his way to also a helping career. Um, so tell me about how things are between the two of you now. Are you still close? Do you, do you share, you know, a bond because you've kind of made it through the worst? We talk all the time, mostly messenger because he doesn't like to talk on the phone, which is fine. So we message each other all the time. And when we get together in person, it, it's great. He knows me better than probably most people. I, even though he's younger than me, he's, he has so much wisdom and experience in those years that I will sometimes go to him as his older sister and ask for advice. And he knows that he can ask me for advice and that I'm experimenting with life three years ahead. So if he ever needs any advice or any help, I'm here for him. Given your, your own history and given your occupation, what do you think your lived experience 
helps you with in terms of working with these kids? I think the biggest, the biggest thing is empathy and patience. I do have a number of kids who do have sensory sensitivities and or general sensory differences. And it can easily be, I think, misinterpreted as seeking attention, just being a bad kid, manipulating, oh, they're being dramatic. And believe me, I, I never am thinking that about my kids. I think it gives me a level of empathy that a lot of people don't have. I've given a couple of kids earplugs just as gifts because they come to me, they say, my ears hurt. It's everything so loud. I say, me too. We bond. And I, I just try to make a change in their lives in a positive way. So you do say me too. In other words, you share with them the fact that you've struggled with some of these same things. Oh, of course. I think that's so important because when I was a kid, I felt so different from it. Like I, I knew there was something fundamentally just different about me. And I didn't know anybody else who struggled with it. I think it's important that they have somebody to relate to. And, and I hope it helps them. What would you say to your 14, 15, 16-year-old self who um, looked in the mirror and hated what she saw? If you were counseling a student who was very much like you, what would you say? You have so much life ahead of you, so much time. <laughs> Do not give up on this now. This is not the way that your life is going to be. This is one period, one small chapter. There's no point in, in ending it all now or feeling like this, thinking that you're going to feel like this forever because there is so much hope. Things change so much every single year, especially when you're young. You have no idea what direction your life is going to take and they should never give up hope. You have mentioned a couple times that, you know, when you were younger, that even sort of discussing mental health or admitting to, to challenges was kind of taboo. But you also mentioned that you think things are really changing. What do you see that tells you that? They are. I'm so glad that they are comfortable with me. And that's one of the things that I wanted to say, too, is just from, from a family member of someone who has struggled with those really, really stigmatized conditions. It's not a character defect. That's one of the biggest things that I would say. And I think people are starting to realize that now. We're learning more and more probably every single year. And that's, that's one of the things that gives me hope. We know how to educate ourselves better than ever. We have more research coming out than ever. And that gives me hope for how we're going to treat it in the future as well. Well, I thank, thank you and Aiden for sharing your stories. And, I, and kudos to your parents. It's hard to have children that are struggling. And it's hard to know the right thing when you really, when it's new to you as well. So um, just I'm proud of your whole family for getting through your struggles, for sticking together, for still loving each other, for not abandoning each other. That's really a critical thing in someone's recovery. Thank you so much. I think the thing that struck me about Lainey's story was that so much of what exacerbated her mental health problems was such 
normal, typical stuff. Right. You know, I have acne. I feel ugly. I'm being rejected by people. I'm. It just makes you aware of, I think as a parent, it can be so hard when you, if you don't know a lot about mental health to go, is this normal behavior or is something really wrong here? Okay, we all feel ugly and unattractive and rejected when we're in high school or junior high or whatever. But at what point does it kind of cross over into being a real serious mental health issue? Kind of give it to their parents because they were pretty on top of it. Absolutely. Carrie, you know, I have three daughters that are um, all within three years of each other. And so I had concurrently three girls going through middle school, high school, and all of the agita that goes along with that. And I have to say, I didn't, I wasn't able to identify Marin's particular difficulties as a mental health issue. I thought she was just different than the other two. So it takes a very discerning parent, in my opinion, to know that and a very brave and discerning parent to act upon that. And I was struck by how both Aiden and Lainey said, mom and dad didn't know what it was, but they knew it wasn't right. And so they found an expert who could do that. And I think that's, those are salient words that I share with my daughters who are now mothers that if it doesn't feel right, look into it. Yeah. I think that is such an important point. I know when I look back now at my son's struggles, I, I was clueless, to be honest. I was clueless. He went through all kinds of difficulties in middle school and high school, but so much of it was sort of normal teen angst, you know? I mean, he did have some learning disabilities, and but a lot of it was sort of, unfortunately, normal bullying and um, ostracizing and kids being mean and... I look back on it now and I think, oh, my God, there were all these things that should have been big red flags. And and they weren't. I mean, they really I remained pretty clueless until things got serious. Really bad. Yeah, I think I still argue that parenting should come with a manual because there's no way. Or a warning sticker. I don't know which. I think as parents, Carrie, you and I both have to, and we've done this for one another, but lend each other grace. There is a lot that you don't know, a lot that you can't recall from your own childhood. So it's hard to discern what's normal and what's not. And the world has changed in the century and a half since I was in middle school. So I think it's it's important that parents continue to be vigilant, but also be go easy on yourself. This is tough stuff. Yeah, but I think the point you raise is really the point that, that we want to share, which is as a parent, if something just doesn't feel right, you know how it is, it kind of nags at you. If something just feels off or wrong or, you know, you're concerned, what what harm is it to find a professional and get some advice for you and your child, you know, about, about how to deal with it? I do give big kudos to to Lainey and Aiden's parents because I think they did a great job not only of recognizing early that things were going bad, but from what I can tell, they have really stuck with their kids through some pretty difficult, challenging times. And, you know, as as Lainey says, they're they're all really close now. So 
I think that's the that's the reward if you can make it through the difficult times. Um, and if you would like to have your story or your child's story told, we are always looking for opportunities to share people's mental health journeys. So you can reach us on social media platforms or at facingmentalillness at gmail.com. Carrie, again, thank you for a great interview and I look forward to the next one. And I just want to say a special thanks to Laura here because I don't think anybody understands how hard these podcasts are to edit. And then the interviews normally go anywhere between an hour and a half and sometimes even two hours. And Laura, it has the thankless task of trying to hone them down into 35 or 40 minutes. And it's very time consuming. Um, As I've said before, Laura and I both have other jobs. So I just want to express my gratitude. Couldn't couldn't do any of this without her. You should all be thankful that Laura is doing the editing and I'm not because I'm technologically challenged. And that Carrie is doing the interviewing and I'm not because I'm just nosy. So (laughs) thanks, Carrie. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. 